0: Good evening, Corvallis. It is uh, 7 p.m. on a Sunday, and that can only mean one thing. Uh, it is the 18th of September, 2016, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. Uh, and on a Sunday, of course, it means it's another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. My name is Adrian Gallo.
1: And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU or you're just interested in coming on the show, you can find us at our blog, blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out who's coming up next for our guests and our links to Twitter and Facebook.
0: Now, inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Paul Snyder from the College of Science. Say hi.
2: Hey, it's great to be here. All right.
0: Well, we're very happy to be on the show, and uh, I'm sure as you have noticed, Paul, uh, around the university, there are many young beavers moving in uh, <laughs> moving into the dorms. So uh, I'm going to give a little a little bit more of an intro to this show. Uh, we talk about graduate students, and today we are so lucky to have you on air. Um, what exactly is it that you do in a very uh, broad sense?
2: Oh, well, uh, I'm here at Oregon State University doing uh, research on amphibian diseases and immunity. Uh, currently, amphibians are undergoing a massive decline uh, for the last three decades, um, They've been the most rapidly declining vertebrate taxa on the planet, and um, we believe over 160 species have already gone extinct. So I uh, do disease work trying to determine um, some of the causes and really suss out what's happening so we can tell if it's a a bigger issue that can be corrected.
1: So what exactly is disease ecology? Yeah.
2: So disease ecology, uh, which is a primary field of my research um, thus far, is... um, the study of diseases and how they uh, move between hosts, how they move through the environment and how they move through space and time and also how they change and, and adapt. So now by host, do
0: you mean uh, do you mean humans or do you mean animals? You know, what do you mean by that?
2: So, uh, yeah, host could be uh, anything that gets infected with a disease or a pathogen. Um, so it could be a person or it could be an amphibian uh, or it could be a bird or something in the ocean. It could really be anything. Um, and we just, you know, by applying the, by, by learning how to track a disease or understand a disease or how they work in one system, you can apply it broadly to multiple systems.
0: Oh, so then by that, you can then kind of understand and maybe even predict what could happen if an outbreak, uh, or if you sense an outbreak may be occurring.
2: Yeah. And that would be the, the ultimate uh, goal of, I think, disease ecology is to be able to be a predictive, uh, mm-hmm. predictive force in disease work.
0: Now, okay, now, before we get into the big picture, let's stick here with Oregon State. Um, our, what, what kind of student are you? You're a graduate student, but are you a master's or Ph.D.?
2: So I'm a Ph.D. student. Um, okay. I'm just starting my third year here at Oregon State University. Hmm, okay, and uh, what college are you in? I'm in the College of Science, and the uh, department is Integrative Biology.
0: Nice. And uh, for you young Beavers out there, uh, there are many, many graduate students that make the world go around, and uh, Paul is just one of them. Uh, Paul, who is your uh, principal investigator?
2: So, I am in the lab of Dr. Andrew Blaustein, who is an amphibian uh, disease ecologist
0: okay, great, great and um, okay now l- let's get back to to your research uh, what what exactly brought you in to, uh, to to this idea of disease ecology you know what what were some of the things that kind of ticked you off and you know, made you think this is worth studying for five years and giving my blood sweat and tears to go after
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i uh you know i Once I got involved in research, I realized I loved it, and um, ecology is where I first plunked in, so I was really comfortable in ecology, Um, and I wanted my work to be able to be broadly applicable, so um, just studying maybe the ecology of a species wasn't enough for me, but disease ecology allows me to have that that broader implication, and um, without without maybe the stress of dealing with people, I can deal with animals.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you still have to deal with people sometimes, I'm sure, too. Of course. course. (laughs) Well, okay, so, Paul, you said once you finally got interested in research. So I'm wondering what you were doing before that. When did you become a science fan that you are? When did you have that first moment like, I love science?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've, I've loved science as long as I can remember. And growing up, we didn't get enough of it, uh, we didn't have a lot of science classes in school. We had general biology and general science, but we never had chemistry or geology or, um, or any, any other sciences. You know. Um, and this is, this is in high school? Yeah, high school, middle school. Um, I just always loved it. And afterwards, I, uh, I tried to keep up. I would, I would uh, subscribe to all the science magazines I could get my hands on to, um, whether or not I could understand the content. <laughs> and uh, just try and keep up. And I loved it. Uh, but but you, you did
1: know. have some experience or you had like kind of this like um, mechanical mind, right? Because you did some coding, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. So I grew up as a computer programmer. I wasn't allowed to have video games in the house, but I was allowed to write my own video games. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> let's take a step back. Dad said you can't buy any video games. So you're like, all right, forget <laughs> it. I'll um, just write my own.
2: Yeah, yeah, and actually, <laughs> I didn't even have the power to buy them because our allowance was two dollars a week. So, <laughs> you have up, to save was, up
1: a while for a twenty. <laughs> yeah,
2: that would be that would be a lot of saving. But so, um, so when was your first computer game? When did you write your first the first, first game? That the was the first one I remember writing was when I was six. Um, I know I sat and watched my dad code before that, but that was the first one I remember finishing. And basically, you just took a square dot. And moved it through a maze with a joystick, and that was all the game was. But that was my first.
0: I mean, that must have been loads of fun for the first game you
2: made, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I felt <laughs> like I was, I felt like I was doing the real deal. I would, <laughs> I would subscribe to like magazines about games, and then I'd like, look at them and try to make something similar myself. Nice. So that's kind of your first
0: experience within the realm of science and technology. But uh, you know, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't become a computer programmer straight out of the back. You know, what what other kind of odds and ends did you do while while growing up?
2: Oh, Well, growing up, I, I guess I did a lot of stuff. Uh, I, s- I started working at 13. and uh, You I stayed- really wanted
0: those video games, didn't you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I did. I, more than anything, I wanted the freedom to do what I wanted to do. Uh, and I don't think anyone had the kind of technical interests that I had. Mm. So it was, it was kind of a lone thing. So, you know, I started working right off the bat and stayed employed uh, continuously, you know, henceforth.
1: Okay, so uh, what was your first job then? In science? My Nine first job science? in science. Or what was your first job ever at 13? Oh
2: well, my first job was <laughs> selling newspaper subscriptions for the St. Petersburg Times in uh, Tampa, Florida.
1: Okay. So
0: you were a, you were a glorified paper boy.
2: I, I was. I would go door <laughs> to door and uh, try and convince people they needed this paper. And I guess since I was young and cute, maybe sometimes it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: then what did you do after high school?
2: After high school, I... Um, when I got out of high school, I was in retail and at Toys R Us, and they moved me up to a management position shortly after I graduated high school, and so I stayed, and um, I worked in management in the R.S. company for eight years oh, so af- after high school.
0: The, the R.S. meaning uh, the Toys R Us and the Babies R Us. What, what kind of things did you do? You, did you play with toys all day? Is that what you did? Sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't blame you. There's a lot of fun
2: toys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, uh, I loved the environment at Toys R Us because it was always changing. If, mm. if your store was low on, on um, sales figures but everything else was caught up, you could spend the day demoing toys to try and boost sales, You know, and that would be fantastic. Quality, but, quality control. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I loved everything about it. I loved, uh, I loved unpacking trucks and prepping for crazy Christmas sales and going to other stores to fix them up when they needed retrofitting. I loved everything about the job.
0: You know, so speaking of you know that job doesn't sound like you can ever take a break you know there's always something new going on and this goes back to you know to to your enjoyment of the science and, science and technology field uh, but he, one of the reasons why you didn't leave high school thinking i'm going to be a scientist was because of the limited number of classes that were offered in high school. Like you said, there was no geology classes or chemistry classes. So, I mean, this was just a natural step because it, it was always something new in your day.
2: Right, right. And another thing that really held me back is that uh, research science was not never presented as something we could do. You know, we learned you could be a doctor or a vet or you could, you know, you could be a welder or an air conditioner repairman. You could do all these different things. But never once was, oh, you can be a research scientist and these are the steps you need to get there. So it never crossed my mind that it was something the average person could get into.
1: So then, how how do you make that jump from retail management to now you're gonna think about being a research scientist?
2: Yeah, I eventually got discontent with uh, retail um, over a number of years, and I, I wanted to do something else. I just wasn't happy anymore. And uh, one of my one of my friends stopped by. Very randomly, uh, her name was Jen Stubbs, and she came in and she saw all these science magazines sitting around. And I was But you
0: still had all these magazines hanging out. You were still piles, subscribing to them.
2: Piles, all over the house. So it was what, like my
0: love. So in the background, <laughs> you, you always stuck with science. You were still doing this, you know, at, at the dinner table or whatnot. You're always reading these magazines. that keep always. you interested. Yeah, yeah. What were
2: uh, some of your favorites? I loved, um, I love Scientific American. I think that mm. was my number one favorite. It was, it wasn't as um, simple. And broken down maybe as like popular science. But it still wasn't like a journal where you couldn't dig through the stuff without a degree.
1: Cool. Okay. So so Jen, your friend, was saying, hey, why don't you think about doing this? How long was it until you finally decided to, to bite the bullet and just go back for science?
2: It was, it was probably about six months after that conversation. And it was uh, it was 2008. That I went back. I already had an AA, and I went back to get my bachelor's in biology, in uh, yeah, in 2008.
1: And so you immediately jump in, right? You start uh, start with undergraduate research.
2: Yeah, uh, actually, my I was so lucky. My first quarter there, uh, one of my TAs invited me. She said, "You know, I like your writing." Oh, and, and what's a TA for for those new listeners coming into? Oh, okay, State? yeah. So it's a it's a teaching assistant, and uh, the TA is generally. In a lot of the classes you take, going to be the person who teaches the uh, lab that's attached to the class. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a lot of other functions too. Sometimes they'll uh, do grading or stand in for lectures. Uh, my TA was running the lab I was in, mm-hmm. and so I turned in a lab report, and and that was really that was the big plunge. That was the break I was looking for. Someone said, "Hey, you want to come and work in my lab with me?"
0: Right. And uh, what university was this at?
2: This was at the University of South Florida.
0: Okay, and so I imagine that's a very unique ecosystem of which you can uh, participate in different kinds of research that you probably can't do here in the Pacific Northwest. So, what kind, of, what kind of research were you immediately kind of dove into? Were you like immediately at the computer coding something, or maybe something a little bit more mundane? Yeah, yeah, definitely started
2: mundane. And I've always been <laughs> hesitant to mix my coding hobby with my like career path. Oh. Because I don't want to stop loving my hobby. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll
0: come back to that.
2: But um, yeah, I, I started washing dishes. My first quarter, I washed dirty dishes in the lab. That was it. What, like plates and spoons and stuff. Um, yeah, Petri dishes and beakers. And, and I was excited just to hold the stuff. I'm like, I know this is an Erlenmeyer flask. This is awesome. I get to wash one. I get to hold it. I get to see these things used. So I was excited just to be in a real lab where real science was being done. Um, and after that first quarter, I said, you know, I've got to, I've got to get my hands dirty with more than just this washing. And
0: uh, well, your hands were pretty clean by then, right? I guess so. <laughs> Maybe
2: I needed to get them a little less pruny. Oh yeah. <laughs> but um, they uh, they were happy to oblige, and my graduate student mentor. Uh, took me in and, and got me involved in the experiments in experimental design and data analysis and it was just fantastic. I've never looked back.
1: <laughs> so so then you've got you've you've got your feet wet in the lab now or you've got your hands wet in the lab now. <laughs> and and clean hands, very clean hands. Right. And so you graduate from Florida wait South Florida University University right? of South University Florida. of South Florida and then uh so what was your degree biology
2: biology biology yeah majored in bio and a minor in chemistry
1: Okay and then so right after that were you like totally sold next step is graduate school I'm going to be a research scientist I need a PhD is was that your immediate next I, step
2: <laughs> One of the professors whose lab I worked in um Great guy, fantastic teacher, Dr. Lynn Martin. He wanted me to apply to be his PhD student, and I was terrified. I well, told him this is still yourself as
0: an undergraduate,
2: right? Right. This is undergraduate. You know, I've, I'm excited. I'm pretty sure I want this to be my career path. I've been to a conference now, and I've got my name in some published papers, and I'm I'm just loving everything about it. But the idea of signing up for four to six years of one thing is is really daunting, and uh, I couldn't do it. And I told that to the professor, but he he wasn't interested in a masters. I said I would. I could maybe try that, you know, but I couldn't, I couldn't jump into the PhD. And so I didn't, I, I found jobs in the field instead so that my education wouldn't, you know, wouldn't go to waste. I wouldn't be doing something other than disease ecology.
0: Now, that's a pretty good lesson, or you have a, a lot more self-control than I think I I would have, uh, because if you're not ready for that PhD to step into that four or five year time frame. Oh boy, then maybe it's definitely not, it's not don't. Right for you. Yeah, <laughs> definitely yeah. don't. Definitely don't start
1: if you're not ready for it. <laughs>
0: Follow your heart. Yeah. Right. So then, so at at the University of South Florida, you did some undergraduate research looking at how parasites attach to tadpoles, and that was kind of your your first intro to disease ecology. Um, and and you said you had found some uh, you had found some work in in the similar field. So what kind of things were you doing once you
2: finished your degree? Oh, so when I finished, I. Uh, I wanted to keep working in disease ecology, and I definitely wanted to keep working with parasites. Uh, I, I'm really interested in parasites. And um, <laughs> so I went and I worked uh, first in New York, upstate New York. I worked at the Cary Institute uh, for Ecosystem Studies with Dr. Richard Osfeld and I was just a lowly research assistant um, working on a couple Lyme disease projects. and that okay, was
0: Lyme disease. What the heck is that?
2: <laughs> Lyme disease is a... Uh, is a disease that people can get um, after being bit by a tick. And oh, so you're counting ticks? I, yep, one of our jobs was counting ticks, collecting and counting ticks, and then uh, taking them back to the lab and finding out what percentage had Lyme disease.
1: Is it hard to collect ticks? Are you, like, digging through dirt or, like, rolling around in hey, mud? Hey, it's soil. It's soil. Sorry. <laughs> soil <scientist>. it is.
2: <laughs> it's a pretty. It can be a pretty daunting thing. It can be fun, too, but... Um, We would go out to a site, randomly picked by the computer, and you drag a one-meter-by-one-meter cloth down a transect. And then you stop and count all the ticks that have attached to the cloth, and you collect them in a jar. But the thing I think that's daunting is you can't wear insect repellent, or you'll repel the ticks. And so if you're in a place like a swamp collecting, then when you get covered in mosquitoes and you're counting, you have to to really decide— Is it worth swatting this mosquito (laughs) to lose count and start over? Okay, when you say lose count,
0: are you like you know one to thirty, one to a hundred? What are we talking about here?
2: Yeah, well, it depended on when in the season we were, but we could have hundreds, and potentially even a thousand or more on a sheet, depending on the season. If we went through a nest right after it hatched, there could be. just an incredible amount of ticks to count.
1: So you're oh not swatting goodness. any mosquitoes. Then you're going to have to
2: start <laughs> counting all over, all thousand of them Ugh, all over no. again. Oh yeah. not Every now you. and then there'd be one that was worth it, and you just swat it, and then, that was so good, okay. <laughs> one, I'm going to go back to let the rest of these guys three, buy me. <laughs> <four>. <laughs> start over, yep.
1: All right, so research, not always so glamorous, getting out in the field. <laughs> maybe you look like a like there's been a. Alien missile or or something. (laughs) You're in hazmat suits getting bit by mosquitoes. Anyway, so you had Lyme disease uh, project. And that was when you got into this kind of disease or even more so into the disease ecology.
0: What was the end goal of this project while you were at New York? You know, What was the big picture idea?
2: Well, the first project we did was to see um, if you could predict from an aerial survey or satellite image Lyme disease risk. And um, by, by doing this, we would, we would match up our results with the aerial surveys. We had uh, over 200 sites. The goal Whoa. was to say, can we predict by looking at a photo what the risk is? And that would help in selling homes. And they could say, you know, you can buy this home. There's, you know, there's going to be X Lyme disease risk in this area.
0: Mm. So you, you were kind of the field truthers. Uh, So that that way future people wouldn't have to go through and, you know, count ticks. Uh, You you did the dirty work for them. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So you went from, you know, keeping your hands really nice and scrubby clean to getting out in the bogs and getting destroyed by mosquitoes. Talk about a 180. (laughs) Okay. And for for those listeners just joining us, uh, you're listening to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. This is a show called Inspiration Dissemination where we talk to graduate students about their research and their road to graduate school. Uh, t- this evening, we're very gracious to be joined by uh, Paul Schneider. He's in the College of Science studying uh, uh, disease ecology, and uh, he has just finished up some uh, some work after finishing his undergraduate degree. Uh, he just finished in New York, and now, where are you off to, Paul?
2: After New York, I headed off to the University of Georgia. I, um, oh, where there are chiggers and ticks. <laughs> <laughs> there are indeed. Ah, but no Lyme disease risk, so that's good. Oh, Not yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somewhere around the Virginia line, the uh, deer ticks stop carrying Lyme disease. Okay. Um, so at University of Georgia,
0: were you also uh, a, a researcher, or, um, a graduate student? You know, what was your position there?
2: No, I was, uh, I was the lab manager for uh, Dr. Vanessa Azenwa. A lab manager. Yep.
0: Now, uh, describe for our listeners what it really means to be a, a lab manager. Are, are you
2: sitting there with the books making sure the numbers work out? or
1: Are you washing dishware again?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, lab manager has been my favorite job that I've ever had in my life, and it, it involves a lot of things. Um, I definitely do keep the lab clean, um, make sure it's up to safety regulations. I, uh, I did the accounting for Vanessa and her grants in her lab. Um, I ordered all the equipment. I plan and purchase all the flights for all the students uh, wherever they're going overseas. Whoa, wait, wait. Um,
0: overseas? Yeah. Well, Why Van- are you going overseas?
2: Well, Vanessa's work um, was primarily in Africa. Um, she does do work in the States with bighorn sheep, but primarily she works with gazelles and uh, buffalo in Africa.
0: Holy shenanigans. So, so th- th- this isn't just a, a hop, scotch, and a jump over the pond. This is a heck of a trip to get to any field sites. And, and your job as a lab manager was to kind of oversee some of these things if something went wrong?
2: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And uh, when things would go wrong in the field, I would be summoned. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, and and I'd get on a plane and head out to Africa to help.
0: And before we, before we get to Africa, could you describe you know, what, what the big idea was uh, behind Vanessa's research?
2: Um, so I think the most predominant research that I helped with was in South Africa, and um, that was on buffaloes and their parasites. And uh, buffalo had, the buffalo in South Africa, a lot of them have tuberculosis as a TB outbreak. Um, I guess it's been since the 80s, really, so maybe it's not an outbreak anymore. But uh, they have TB, and like most wildlife, they also have a, a you know bevy of gut parasites, worms. And so, for her for her research, which was also in part with uh, the Joles lab here at Oregon State, um, they um, gave a drug to half of the buffalo to kill their gut parasites to see if they would be able to survive the TB better without gut parasites. And uh, you know, what kind of changes are going to happen? And the results from that, which was a five-year study, the results from that were really kind of surprising. They found that if you uh, remove the gut parasites the buffalo definitely did live longer with tb but that meant they also spread the tb to more of the herd so by having less parasites their immune system was allowed to keep the individual alive longer at the cost of the population
0: now what what does that maybe this is an unfair question but what does that mean for the population level the long-term populations of these buffalo roaming around south africa you know is is it better to keep the gut parasites to keep the transmission of tb low
2: i mean it seems like that would be best for the herd it'd be best for the herd that if you got tb it kills you within a few years and that way you'd have less time to spread it um but you know as i i don't do conservation management myself so (laughs) someone might come up with a better plan (laughs) yeah
1: yeah and if we think about that even more broadly that's kind of scary for for thinking about other large mammals, yeah. perhaps humans, Espe- yeah, and especially thinking if you thought about, about people, individual versus herd dynamics. So, right,
2: right. Because we wow. could we could never make the call, you know, with humans and say, "Hey, it's better for all of us if we get rid of these people who are sick." You know, it's not exactly. something you can <laughs> you can even suggest with humans. <laughs> so it's a really challenging but interesting, I think, dynamic.
0: So this was the intersection between both uh, both a virus. Parasites, the individual, and the population of animals—that's—that seems really complex to try and tease out. And is this kind of the one of the ideas behind uh, behind the phrase disease ecology? Is that how you would kind of encompass? Is that this is a study that would that would work like that?
2: Yeah, I think so. I, I think that brings some ecoimmunology into it too, which is which Ooh, is another. Oh, that sounds sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ecoimmunology is just like disease ecology, but flipped and looking at the immune system. So how do How do immune systems change over time and space in a population and after exposure to diseases? Um, And so I think really that's combining both of those fields. So it's combining uh, looking at how the diseases are moving through the population, but it's also taking into account an individual's ability to uh, react to these different diseases.
0: Now, just in terms of scale, immunology is very much at the molecular level, the individual proteins going back and forth and fighting things. But- the the ecology of well I, ecology itself is very much broad scale and the, the reconciliation between those two very different fields it, it, that, that, is that new this uh, ecoimmunology field
2: it is it is it's uh, I'd say ecoimmunology is probably less than two decades old um, and in the world of science that is basically brand new that is brand new because <laughs> <laughs> most
1: people are only just now hearing about it
2: yeah <laughs> and it's it's really interesting. It's a really neat way to think about the immune system. To think, to think about all the different scales as an ecosystem. To think about inside of a single host as an ecosystem, where there's, Ooh. where there's just like in the in the field, you know, there's predators and there's prey and there's interactions and there's fights for food resources, um, and then up to population scale, where you say how is how is the immunity of this whole population changing, or or how is this population reacting to this disease or this pathogen or, or parasite.
0: Okay. Now, now before we get carried away with ecoimmunology, we're going to come back to that. So put that on the back burner. Uh, Let's stay here uh, while you were still at the University of Georgia. Uh, How long was your stint there as a lab manager, going back and forth between uh, South Africa, putting out these little, you know, wildfires of, oh, this didn't work, that didn't work? (laughs) Uh,
2: I was there for three years. Um, Fantastic. (laughs) And after my first trip to South Africa, which was... Amazing, of course, like you get there and you see a whole new world and a new culture and and uh, all the animals that you've only seen in a zoo you see up close in real life. But I quickly learned that um, I'm more comfortable in the first world. So (laughs) I made I made sure to only head out when there was a problem that they needed me. (laughs) I didn't volunteer.
0: And so when you did go out into
2: the field, this was your first experience kind of finding
0: out that OSU had a somewhat similar program. Is that right?
2: Right. Yes. Um, while I worked in South Africa at uh, Vet Wildlife Services at Kruger National Park, um, I was able to work with most of the Joles lab here in Oregon State. And so, by the time I finished my stint at University of Georgia, I uh, had a number of people here at Oregon State that I considered fr- uh, friends, even some really good friends.
0: So then, um, in between that, those two and three, or the the three years that you had at the University of Georgia, was there? Uh, one experience, or you know, one event that you told yourself, you know what, I want to get my PhD for sure. That's definitely what I want to do. Was there something that kind of triggered, or was it a a, a slow continuum towards uh, towards that motivation?
2: It, there, there was definitely an idea that triggered it. Um, I was having so much fun. I was working on the projects for all of Vanessa's grad students. I was working on her projects. I was working on my projects, but they were all directed by someone else. So you know, I would learn all about the project and get to work on it and do all the science, but it was someone else's question or it was Vanessa's question or one of the students question. Um, and I didn't get to direct the question and hmm. to do that, to say, here's what I want to study. I'm going to go out and do it. You need to be a professor in a research lab. Uh, I think that's like, that's where you have the most freedom. I guess you could work at an NGO as well, but that's where you have the most freedom to follow the questions that really interest you and, and working there on everyone else's projects made me realize I need to work on my own projects. And to do that, to answer the questions I want to answer, I'm going to have to get a Ph.D.
0: Interesting. So that brought you along to Oregon State University. Sure did. And so this is OK. So now we're at Oregon State. Uh, you're in your third year here. And uh, it, so just to put it in perspective, as a master's student you when, you when you go to graduate school, you typically have a project that's kind of set out for you. You have some you know, minor things you can tweak that you can answer your own questions. But as a Ph.D. student, you have a lot of freedom. So now that you're here at Oregon State, uh, tell us a little bit more about your research now.
2: Okay. So uh, currently I'm looking into uh, co-infection. And um, maybe I should back up and give a little background about why I'm looking into co-infection. Um, the, the amphibian decline has been blamed on, on one thing after another. And I don't think we really understand what it is. Uh, the, current, the current blame for this is a fungal bacteria. We usually refer to it as BD. Um, its name is <laughs> Batrachokytrium Um So BD is a lot easier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so this, this chytrid fungus, BD, it, it grows on the skin of frogs and it disrupts ion transport and leads to cardiac arrest. So they have a heart attack and die. Um, if they're unable to fight off this infection. And so that is the prevailing idea of why these amphibians are declining. Um, except that the... Oh, go ahead.
0: Remind our, our listeners that we discussed this in the beginning of the program, but you know, why, why do we care so much about amphibians anyways?
2: Oh, well, the amphibian decline uh, is really interesting. When it first started, the, uh, the slogan maybe from the scientists was, this is the canary in the coal mine for the planet. Um, oh. amphibians' skin is permeable to water. And so any pollution in the water ends up right in their bloodstream. Um, oh, so and they're a lot
0: more susceptible and sensitive to the, any minute changes in water
2: chemistry or pollution. Or Maybe
1: air. like an indicator of worse things to come.
2: Exactly. Yeah, they're very susceptible. And so when mm. when scientists at conferences are like, oh, you know, my, uh, my sites didn't have as many amphibians this year. And the other you know, scientists like, oh, mine too. And suddenly they realized something was going on. Oh. Um, it became worrisome that it could be an indicator about something some other global phenomena that's actually driving this. So,
1: so oh, wow. BD, is it actually the culprit, this fungus that grows on their skin and disrupts their respiratory system? I'm,
2: uh, I'm still skeptical, but that is, as a scientist, what I should be, right? And um,
0: <laughs> Good scientist.
2: <laughs> I think what we see when we do laboratory experiments with BD, we see some mortality for sure. Um, we do not see events that lead to population-scale deaths, at least not in the lab. Um, not just from BD. And so it doesn't seem to explain, you know, 160 extinct species. It really doesn't make sense. Um, it's definitely been found worldwide, and so it is It is definitely something of concern. But I, I don't think we can say that it is the driver of these declines. I think it has to be a combination of factors. And so that's why I look at co-infection is to say maybe it is this BD that's found everywhere we've looked, um, but in combination with something that makes it, that makes it more virulent or makes it more deadly, that puts it on the scale of what we're observing.
1: So, yeah. what uh, what are your idea, or who are the other culprits?
2: <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot of culprits. Um, I think UVB radiation. Um, what, there's a lot of research about that that came out of here maybe a decade ago out of University uh, Oregon State University. Um, that was a culprit for a while. I'm not sure that it's. A big player anymore, um, but the ones I'm looking at are uh, the BD chytrid fungus, um, trematode parasites, which are um, parasites that are found in most freshwater bodies um, that frogs inhabit. They come, well, that's a whole other story, and then <laughs> uh, and then ranavirus, uh, which is also known as frog virus three, um, and that is an Ebola-like virus for frogs. They get hemorrhaging all over, and then they generally die before they're able to recover from the virus.
0: So, have you done any experiments with this frog virus three at all?
2: Yeah, um, <clears throat> my first summer I was here that we worked on a big co-infection experiment, looking at the, those three things in, in combination.
0: And can you remind us what those three things are?
2: Oh yeah, um, that's the Bd, uh, the pathogenic fungus that can cause a, a heart attack. These uh, flatworm parasites, which um, insist in the skin and and just cause. Physical damage to the animals, and then uh, this ranavirus, which leads to hemorrhaging and death. Mm. In my experiment, we had uh, every combination of this possible. We also had combinations of population diversity. So we had we had one that only had a single host species available for these pathogens. We had another that had three host species available for these pathogens.
0: So one kind of frog and three kinds of frogs.
2: Yes, and okay. in populations with three kinds of frogs, this ranavirus led to 100% mortality in every uh, replicate of our experiment. Okay.
1: This really confuses me because as a biologist, I would think that if you increase the genetic diversity of the population or of the community, then maybe those organisms would have a better chance fighting off a pathogen. And
0: that's an ongoing theory in ecology, right? That, right? that diversity can breed resilience in ecosystems. So
1: what's right? different that's, about this? Right.
2: That's the dilution effect, and that's generally what we'd expect to see. Um, but what we did see is an amplification-like effect. It's the opposite.: um,
1: So more hosts just there's just more hosts, so it goes or:
2: I think, I think one of the issues with this is that the, the virus itself is such a generalist. And so you know, if you have a, a virus that only affects humans and you have more biodiversity, more different types of animals that aren't just humans around there's a, a, a good chance they're going to get it, and it's a dead end because they don't get infected, they don't get sick.
0: Say a raccoon or a squirrel or a worm, you know, Right, just, it dead ends there. That's it.
2: Exactly. But if, if this virus can attack multiple species, um, then having that increased biodiversity can be detrimental, especially if one species holds on to this infection for a long time, survives longer with it, and is able to spread it more.
1: Mm, I see. So it's this individual versus herd kind of, or individual population um, element again.
2: Right. So here we're at the individual species versus multiple species, right? But it's right. that same so, same idea.
0: So now this is still in the realm, I think I would describe it still as disease ecology. But like you said before, you really wanted to ask your own questions, and you're still really gung-ho about this uh, ecoimmunology idea. So what's the next experiment, next idea that you have coming up?
2: Ooh. I have a few. I don't know exactly how it's going to land, but one of the things I'm really interested in is how uh, the amphibian immune system uh, reacts to the BD fungus, this chytrid fungus. Um, And as it recruits white blood cells to attack um, this fungus, which is on the frog's skin, it actually just... The BD causes them to lice, so the cells just destroy themselves. They show oh, yeah. up and they explode.
0: So the white blood cells basically are army of of combatants to keep out any any bad guys. They just get zapped. Yep, they show up to to fight the BD and they die. What happens if I have really strong strong white white bloods or white T cells? You know that are you know they, they don't have swords; they have bazookas.
2: <laughs> Does that matter? <laughs> well. um, So strong, I'll stay away from. You really want your immune system (laughs) to be balanced. So strong or weak are both probably bad for immune systems. You want balance. I'm a geologist, not a biologist. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I think that could be the case where if your if your animal, this animal's really good at recruiting white blood cells, it's going to spend all this energy throwing its whole immune system at it. It's going to be expending this energy on top of being sick, and it's going to get worse. So we may find looking at it from the immunological side. Something along the lines of, and this is clearly just a hypothesis, but um, that a frog that mounts less um, resistance via you know, a white blood cell um, mediated response is actually going to do better than a species that's launching this huge immune assault.
0: Because it's not going to uh, uh, use that much energy to to try and fight off this fungus, but it's more or less going to be like, all right, you're piggybacking on me. I guess right. I'll deal with it.
2: Right, And then um, the fungus can be cleared from the animal if they get warm enough. So amphibians can um, give themselves behaviorally-induced fevers by hopping up onto a sunny rock and overheating themselves, and that will kill off the fungus. So it is possible for them to clear this infection, um, but not with their immune systems. Um, Well, that's that's too strong of a saying. I should hedge my bets a little more, but um, I, I think we'll find... I think we'll find the link between immunity and this disease isn't as straightforward as we expect.
1: Very, very exciting. So I only have one more question: what What comes next after after you've you know studied studied frogs to your heart's content?
0: Maybe train them to jump on rocks when you need them to. <laughs> uh,
2: next, I I would love uh, I think I would love my final goal to be a research professor at a research university where I get to not only. Um, ask whatever questions I want to answer in science, but I also get to train the next generation of scientists, and I think that would be amazing. I do, however, uh, want to step out of academia for a little bit in between here and there, um, and I, I'm hoping to just do a couple years of uh, software development with my, with my coding hobby. So you're going <laughs> to let your
1: coding hobby become a job, though.
2: Yeah, as long as it's fun, <laughs> and as soon yeah. as it's not, <coughs> I'll jump back to science.
1: Okay, Okay, nice. Great. Well, so it is you know, that's that's about the time that we like to wrap up our show. You're listening to Inspiration Dissemination. But before that, we do have two traditions that we always hold on the show. And the first is to ask you if you have any advice for undergraduates who are maybe not sure what they're going to do or someone who just loves coding and doesn't know what to do or any general life advice, maybe for some of the little beavers that just showed up on campus?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, my, my number one advice is if you, think, if you think research science is even something you maybe want to do, even just a little, find one of your TAs in one of the classes you're taking and talk to them and say, hey, do you know of any research I can get into? And do it. Get some hands-on experience. Find out if you like working in a lab. Find out if you like collecting data and setting up experiments. And get that hands-on experience. Um, I, don't, I don't think just the degree uh, tells you what you need to know to make that decision. I think if, if you think science is in your future, uh, get involved. Contact a professor or, a, or one of your teaching assistants who, who does something you think is cool.
1: Great. Thanks, Paul. Um, yeah. Our last one.
0: Yeah, we have one more tradition on inspiration dissemination, and that is to ask our guests to, to bring a song. So what song did you bring and why did you choose it, Paul?
2: Ooh, so I brought the Monster Magnet song Cobras and Fire, and I brought it because uh, Monster Magnet is just my favorite band. They are uh, like um, science fiction, psychedelic hillbilly rockers, and uh, it is just so much fun. There's never any whining about broken hearts or anything. <laughs> it is just nonsense and rock music, and I love it.
0: Awesome. Okay, and with that, we conclude this episode of Inspiration Dissemination. We would like to thank Paul for coming on the show.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been very cool.
1: Definitely, and uh, we will be back next week with another guest. And this is Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. Here is Monster Magnet, Cobras, and Fire Hallucination Bomb. Request from Paul Snyder.